This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com. Another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to The Gathering Songs. Where is that book? Here's the rest of the materials you requested. Will I get to talk to the Skeksis? I have so many questions. Oh, the Lords don't like questions. Oh, why don't they like questions? How else do we learn? So you can read. Oh, how wonderful. I, too, am a connoisseur of the written word. (gasps) I've read all about you. I see you've done your research. I have tongues that go back a thousand. Try! What are those funny marks? This is all writing. What's writing? Words that stay. When single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone shall be whole the two! Well, howdy y'all, and welcome back to The Gathering Songs. This is the Trial by Stone podcast's deep dive discussion of the Dark Crystal books, comics, etc. I'm your host, Jason Delgado. Uh, Last time we gave an intro on where we have been and our thoughts on the Netflix show and their connection to the books in general. But today we will be diving deeply into book number four of J.M. Lee's Dark Crystal young adult novel series, Flames of the Dark Crystal. Of course, I'm not alone, but joined by a great crew. Let's go around and introduce each one quickly. First, we have the creator of this very podcast, Philip Mitchell. Philip, how you doing? Hey, Jason. No, I've been doing great. I mean, you know, it's, um, I guess, real world, you know, it's a bit interesting times um, with things that have been going on, you know, in the real world. But I mean, this is, but this is the fun thing about podcasting is that we can always, you know, talk about Dark Crystal and it's something that I love and enjoy and um it's it's just great to be to be on this you know on the gathering songs um having this show coming back um you know while while we're waiting for you know what's happening with the future of um you know with age of resistance and um and being able to you know really go back to reading about the books um i know this is these have been shows that um you know that, that started you know, years and years ago um and really, Joe's books were the ones that really started the podcast, after all. So um, it's it's actually been good to actually, you know, now that we've watched the show a lot, um, that we've now let's have this time to really delve back into the Dark Crystal and to pretty much finish finish what we started essentially. So um, you know, with these young adult novels from um, from Joe. Um, so with you know, Flames of the Dark Crystal that we're going to be discussing today, it's it's pretty cool. So I'm really going to enjoy um, you know all these discussions that we're going to have in um, in this episode. Yeah, same here. I know I, for one, have been waiting a while for the continuation of the of this book series podcast because I have been a long time fan of listening of reading through the books and listening along with the podcast. I'm like, where's the book for discussion? So um, I'm I'm more than overjoyed to be able to. Uh, participate and join along in this. But of course, it's not just Philip and myself. We also have one of the newest interview hosts to the Trial by Stone podcast, Sydney Frost. Sydney, how goes it? Not too bad, all things considered. I'm um, right there with you. Super excited um, to be talking to other thrallings about this book that I've just been obsessed with since the day it came out. 
um, I'm, I think the world needs more escapes right now. And, um, it's never a, a bad time to dive into worlds that you love that make you happy. And nothing else is quite like Thra for that, um, for me. And I think for all the people listening here. So I'm really, really excited to dive into this book. I've, this was one of my favorite ones, I think, of the quadrilogy. Oh, yeah. When I was going back reviewing all the books, I was like, man, book one was my favorite. And then I started reviewing book two. I was like, oh, I really like this one a little more. And then book three and then book, like, it, it just, my love for this series just kept building and building and building as the characters were growing and continuing their epic quest. So I'm um, right there with you. Really excited about this book and talking about it, especially with fellow fans. So thanks for joining us. Next, we do have some of the old school contributors to the Gathering Songs. And one thing I'm excited about, and it was one of my favorite parts, like I mentioned in the last podcast, is getting to hear authors' perspectives about these books. So first, let me introduce Peter M. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks very much. It's uh, <laughs> We live in an interesting times, so take that as you will. <laughs> Yeah, for, for those of us, you know, I'm not sure exactly when this podcast will release to the public, but the context of time we're in, we're all kind of in, in lockdown from coronavirus, you know, we're not wanting to spread anything like that. So that's that's what the context of the background, some of the stuff we're seeing is. So It's the darkening right now. We're all uh, in quarantine from the darkening. Exactly. Yeah, we don't want it to spread. So we're just uh, doing our part. So, But it's cool. We can still connect online and have these discussions. So. Well, last but certainly not least, uh, the other author and old school contributor we have with us is Nancy Gray. Nancy, welcome, and how are you doing? Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, and um, I'm just uh, looking very forward to talking about this book, because it was one of my favorites, too. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's... I love it, <laughs> but I'm sure a lot of a lot of our love for this books will come out in our discussion. So, with that, there's definitely going to be spoilers for the Netflix TV show since these are really go hand in hand, side by side. Sometimes better than other times, but just note that there will be spoilers for the Netflix show. I don't know why you haven't watched it once or ten times mm -hmm. by now to help support it. Um, in case you haven't, go do that. Also, we are just going to jump straight into book four, kind of assuming you've already read book one through three. Uh, if you have not, definitely read those like we mentioned last time. Listen to the podcast, uh, nerd out with us on that. And um, here we go. Let's dive into book number four. So as I said earlier, book number four is Flames of the Dark Crystal. And I loved how it began. It began, well, one thing I should note about these books is they, I really only think that it was kind of book two that kind of had a proper ending like when it ended i was like oh that's yep. kind of a, a happy ending and you know all's not horrible and thrall but most of the time the books kind of end mm -hmm. on cliffhangers and you're just like uh what happens next i gotta wait a year because these books usually come or i think when they came out they came out once per year and the time kind of get started getting more and more extended a couple months so a year plus some months uh so when book three ended naya is basically miss well our our team of protagonists they get swallowed up like they, you think they get away but then they wind up getting swallowed up by Skeksaw's behemoth ship and um Skeksaw captures them all Naya's missing we don't know where she is she's unaccounted for and it's just a total cliffhanger and it just ends and I remember when when it, that book ended I was like I have to wait a year and I think it was like a year and three or four months until it actually wound up coming out I do remember that 
And I was very thankful that the publisher put out the first two chapters like six months ahead of time. So as soon as they released that, I read it and be like, oh, okay, she's fine. And here's what happens. But still, though, chapter two even ends on a cliffhanger. But anyways, we'll get there. So this mm-hmm. book just picks up right where the action stopped. And it starts off in a rather curious way because the group of protagonists get swallowed up by this behemoth. And then all of a sudden, we're back at book one. Naya winds up reliving and kind of re-seeing the beginnings of her epic journey when she's back on Sog and that mysterious Vaprin, you know, who we later find out is one of the Almadra's daughters, Tavra, is there. And her memory is kind of different because in this memory, she's flying. In the in book one, she can't fly yet. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing. I was, I'm kind of curious, just wh- whoever has a thought on this, just kind of chime in. What did you think about that intro? How, I mean, there's so much action and then all of a sudden it stops and she's just kind of reliving her past in a slightly different way. Um, I thought it was interesting before, she, right before she wakes up that they actually kind of met, merged the Nebri's face with the um, turtle's face. So oh, it's one yeah. of those things where it's like, because she starts talking about how it looked like the Nebri and then suddenly it was reptilian. It's like she's starting to slowly through this flashback come to to where they are right now. But at the same time, you know, I like that it kind of brings them back to the beginning of that um, where she fought, where she had to fight the Nebri and the corruption and things of that nature just kind of coalesce into this. It's not really a flashback, but it kind of is. It's a flashback in a dream. So I thought that was interesting the way that he did that. It was really smart, too, because it implemented that... um that sort of show don't tell with exposition, you know, where mm-hmm. um, it, it could be r- a really lazy move to kind of be like, well, when last we left off, here's what uh, mm-hmm. you may remember from the last time you were reading. But rather than kind of going that route or or even the next step up would be, you know, the characters are having dialogue about what had happened and that's sort of their sneaky way to give exposition about what had happened. Instead, they... Um, Joe really took a, a creative leap here and decided, well, you know, Naya's going through some stuff here. She's um, kind of knocked out and a little delirious. So in that dream state, so to speak, she's flashing through all of the experiences she's been through. And um, I don't know if anybody else has ever <clears throat> had that nightmare where you're back in high school again, or if that's just <laughs> me, but I've, I've had this this dream where like, I'm going through every school I've ever been through and like I'm trying to get out of school and every time I open the door I'm at the next school like oh now I'm at my middle school and now I'm at my high school so it's sort of like a I think Joe understood me on that level like when you're in a dream especially if it's under high stress and you're kind of in that nightmare state um, your mind puts together all of the, the different memories of things that are fresh in your mind and so you're you're seeing old experiences through new eyes and that's what's happening with Naya here she's reliving you know giving the audience the exposition (laughs) the readers the exposition everything's very cinematic to me we're an audience um and it it was just very creative way to go I think I like the way he also has her flying in it yeah because before she couldn't fly and then she's trying she's still like trying to kind of catch up with uh, Tavra's heels but in, it's like it gives her more confidence you know yeah. shows that she is looking at it through different eyes because now she's trying to keep up with Tavra and can almost kind of do it but um, yeah I mean it's it's 
kind of the same sort of thing. It's like looking at it from a different perspective because the characters changed a lot through all of the books. Because in a way, we're not starting from where we left off at the end of the third book. We're also sort of starting from where we left off uh, at the end of the first book because this is the first time we're coming back to Naya's point of view since the first book. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like two recaps in one. We're picking up from the events of book three, but from the perspective of book one. This was a really clever way to do both of those simultaneously. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I also liked it as an author, if I can say briefly. <laughs> Because you're always advised as an author never to start off with characters waking up. So you actually don't because we turn that on its head because we see the character waking up from a dream, but a dream of a different reality, which is really neat. Uh, I liked it. And it gave us, as everybody said, you know, perspective and recap everything all in one uh, quite brilliantly. It also was more exciting, which was good, too. Because yes. <laughs> rather than just having her waking up and, oh, well, yeah, we're inside of the thing's mouth and I saved you, it's more like, you know, you have something that's dramatic that's happening and it pulls you in a little bit better. I was just trying to think, like, you know, with all these different, you know, different types of dream fasting, I was just actually trying to think of, like, what would this be kind of thing be called, you know, dream sleeping or dream flashback or, you know, just <laughs> having fun just thinking about it. Oh, um, yeah about that but uh, but i thought it was a pretty yeah it was a it was a pretty good opener and, I, and it, it definitely um really establishes um you know with, with i mean with this book being from uh naya's uh point of view i mean it was interesting that it's it's almost like a full circle or, or a full square if you <laughs> think about it you know with the four books um that yeah i mean so it, it, you know it so that's the thing, I guess, with chapter one, that it definitely firmly states um, in, in that way that it's definitely, you know, this whole story moving forward is definitely going to be from Naya's point of view, um, which is something, you know, I, I really enjoyed. Like, I really enjoyed, you know, I definitely enjoyed all the different perspectives, like from the different characters um, that we got through each of the books. So, um, and, and, and it's pretty neat that it's sort of gone back, yeah, like full circle, like going back to, to Naya's point of view for, for the last sort of, um, chapter, I guess, or the, you know, uh, all of the story essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about this until you mentioned it, Nancy, how there was kind of a blurring with reality and then her, her memory. But I recall now that in episode one of the Netflix, uh, Asia resistance series, when Rion and his, at the time, girlfriend are dream fasting together and they're kind of reliving their first kiss and how nervous he was and blah, blah, blah. In the middle of their dream fast, you see an Aratham showing up in their dream fast, which wasn't there, but then they, they kind of turn and their dream fast is interrupted strangely. And then like, oh, there's that, that Aratham's in reality here. So, uh, and, and I think we've all had dreams like that too, where it's kind of like, oh, I was dreaming this and this kind of happened. You know, there's kind of like a mm -hmm. merging of the, that, those two things. That's, it was cool because you're back in naya's perspective and i mean he took you just he plunged you in there like you start off in her mind in like okay they just got swallowed up darkness and she's kind of coming to and yeah i i, I agree with all y'all it was it was a super, super cool intro, i thought yeah cool well so chapter one at this part uh naya naya wakes up and once she comes to thankfully she's kept alive due to a specific drenching skill or attribute she has drenching do have gills on their side of the neck and so they are able to breathe underwater and that was the way that she was able to stay alive because as we find out later once the creatures swallowed up the boat with everyone there's some kind of noxious gas that knocked everyone out except for anyone that was underwater and so 
Naya was somehow thrown overboard, or I'm not exactly sure what happened. She doesn't really recall the details, but um, she was underwater, so she was able to to stay um, awake enough or or not get affected by by the noxious gas. Uh, but furthermore, when she opens up her eyes, I like how she's she's just reaching out and grasping for hope from all directions, and she's even she's not even sure if she can speak, and so she's kind of just dream fasting, just sewing sewing around, just kind of pushing out those thoughts. Mm. And it turns out that Gurgen is there and she can't believe it because last time she saw Gurgen was after he had been being tortured at uh, the castle of the crystal and they parted ways when Naya's group was going to Agra's high hill for advice, for guidance and whatnot. It turns out that Gurgen saw Naya and her party fleeing and was going to meet up with them when Skeksaw's behemoth creature got them. Uh, Gurgen was able to rescue Naya thanks to their amphibious nature, like I mentioned. And last Gurgen heard, Skeksaw was planning to use the others, which were the characters Amri, Kylan, Annika, Tavra, and Tay, as bait so that they could finally capture Naya. Because remember, the Skeksis have been really wanting to capture Naya and Gurgen because they're twins. Like Skeptic has theories that different clan members will give off different properties, their essence will, and so he's really curious to find out. Okay, what do twins? You know, these these were were these were once one. Now they're two. You know, depending on the process and all that. H- how will twins' essence affect us? And I think some of the thinking of Skeptic is like, well, we were once one, but now we're two. Like, what can we learn from this? So he's he's a mad scientist. He's thinking of all these crazy things and will do them pretty much at any cost, as we know. Uh, but anyways, continuing on in chapter one, Naya and Gurjan make their way through the living ship and find their companions. And I, I loved seeing the other uses of dream fasting, basically to stay covert and to not talk to each other when they when they find their companions and run and uh, see Skeksaw about to interrogate them. Instead of whispering instead of talking out loud so they can get caught they just dream fast together their thoughts their plans uh i thought that was pretty cool i don't, I don't know about you all they, mm-hmm. the other... they used it like walkie talkies it's like a yeah exactly psychic walkie talkies <laughs> and i am uh once again finding myself extremely jealous of gelfling the the reasons just never end apparently um but yeah i i feel like the the motif of dreams just is really really particularly intense in in this book um as far as Mm. all four of them goes i feel like this one just raised so many new ideas to me about the implications of what dreams are to gelfling and the different layers that dream fasting can open up you know like everything from dream stitching dream etching into things like oh yeah we can just use them to send messages to each other real quick and um, and then we've never really seen a Gelfling like dream dream, like like you said, um, how at the beginning yeah. she's having her dream sequence. Is this a dream fast too, technically? Or is is that, do Gelfling consider dreaming the way that we dream different than than dream fasting? It's just, there's so many questions, but I, but I love it. That's an interesting idea. I think also maybe because she's so um, close with Gurchin and the fact that they're twins could be even a way that he would pick up on it more quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it makes you wonder also, a lot of times the Gelfling that dreams fast in this are basically close, and it's one of those things that makes you wonder if their relationship might even have something to do with that. I, I kind of wish that they had had more than one person in that sequence to see if, like, you know... If it was one of those things that she could have done with any of her friends, if they would have picked that up, or if it was just because it was Gurgen himself. 
these are the things though that the author wants to leave the reader with is they want to leave mm -hmm. you with more good questions about what they're talking about because you're going oh that's an interesting take and that opens up a whole line of inquiry um, especially with twins twins are uh, have been fascinating to humans going back thousands of years it shows in all the stories uh, Star Wars, for example, is predicated around, you know, the twins, Luke and Leia. Uh, they're thought to have mystical powers, um, share unusual bonds. We see that explored in this book. Uh, and part of that also ties into dreaming. Uh, dreaming is doorways into other realities, uh, creating realities through dreams. So seeing that explored through dream fasting is fascinating to me. Uh, although you do have to be careful as an author because you can make it do almost anything. You know, the uh, uh, silent walkie-talkie aspects, like, oh, well, we can just make it do this, and they can do this, and, and it starts to dilute it a little bit. So walking that fine line where you're keeping it interesting, having new things happen, you know, with uh, something that maybe the audience has taken for granted is always good. Um, just have to make sure it serves the story, uh, no matter what you're doing. And, and I think you all might be right that, okay, maybe this was something that these twins could do. Or like They knew each other. They're very comfortable with each other. They totally had that. Because be, if you remember from book one, Naya's not very good at dream fasting. She can't really control it. She accidentally touches Tavra and taps into her mind and kind of does something she should not do. Like She wasn't allowed to do that, and she wasn't even in control. So uh, she's definitely grown as a character. And I think it is also cool when she's trying to get uh, Omri's attention later, you know, Omri's real sensitive, he's used to being in the dark, can sense vibrations really good, and so she goes, okay, he's best at that, let me just tap on the floor just enough to where he could probably be the only one to feel it, so I, I think she, she knows all her companions' skill set really good, and so she's taking advantage of everything she can, you know, really min-maxing if this was like an RPG, RPG game or something. Game or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she understands her party. Yep. That's how you become <laughs> the party leader. Party. Exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that brings us to chapter two. While the captured party is talking with Skeksa, who's just grabbing drinks and, you know, drinking down. And she, also, if you recall, at the end of, of book three, Tay, who's actually being controlled by Tavra in spider form, chopped off one of Skeksaw's hands. So uh, we do learn an interesting little tidbit that Skeksaw was the patron lord of the Sifa clan. Um, what did y'all think about that? Because I, I know originally when I was reading these books, I kind of believed Skeksaw when she was like, no, you know, I don't care about the politics of the castle or things like that. I just want to do my own thing. She kind of found camaraderie with the Sifans because they oh, also like to sell the high sea. Did you think she was telling the truth? Or do you think at one point she was good or what? In a way, because when um, Tavra kind of taunts her in this chapter about it, like, you know, why didn't you throw your lot in with the Sifa? You can see how powerful you are. She actually hesitates. Yeah. I think that she really liked the attention she got being kind of the patron of their clan. And the fact that that's something that she's going to lose now I think that even though it's hard to, it's very subtle, I think she doesn't really want to lose that. Because for a minute there, it actually seems like she's considering it. But then, you know, when Naya comes in, it's like, oh, you know, n n not at all. But um, I just thought that was interesting because I get the feeling she really liked the attention. She really liked, because I mean, she's a Skeksis and. From what we've seen from them throughout the books, they're very arrogant. 
They mm-hmm. like to be the center of attention. They like to feel like they're um, the leader of something. And for a while there, she really did act like she legitimately cared about them. But maybe she didn't care about them as equals at all, but more like pets. It's like this was her pet clan, and now she's losing it. I mean, that's sort of how the other Skeksis treat the rest of the Gelfling as well, the way that they lord over all of the clans and, and you know, talk about them like they're animals, like that whole conversation in the show with um, the Chamberlain and Rian talking about how, you know, you need to accept your roles as our pets if you want to be alive. So it's really, it's just a smaller scale version of the same behavior that the other Skeksis um, exhibit. It's just, it's all for her. She doesn't have to share it with her with her siblings, so to speak. And despite the fact, you know, it's really belittling to think of some, an intelligent race as your pet, you know, I I don't know if anybody else is like this, but we just dropped a lot of money on a uh, cat of ours that we thought was sick. And it's like, she, you, you get attached. And I think she was attached to her role, you know, not really to them, but to her role as over overlord to them. And it's one of those things that she, she considered it just for a minute, maybe not long, mm-hmm. but for a minute, she really considered it. I think. Uh, I would like to say though, that I don't think that she would throw them to the dogs as the expression goes, just to make her own life a touch better. Um, she, didn't give me that impression. She's more even keeled than the other Skeksis. You know, if it was a choice between her life and them, of course, but she wouldn't callously do it just because it would give her a temporary slight advantage, um, which I found interesting as a character aspect of Skeksa. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's also interesting to consider, too, that it's possible that Skeksa's sort of feelings on the matter do change from the first time we meet her and this point in the series because if you think about it you look at the heretic and he has a completely different um personality and mentality and the the way that the darkening hasn't affected him at all because arguably of his proximity to his other half the fact that he's isolated with his uru counterpart and you could say in a way that the same is true of Skeksa in that she's out separated from all of the other Skeksis. She's out at sea, kind of in a way with Ursan, her her counterpart, Uru. And so she's a little bit less um, corrupt in the same way that the other Skeksis are at that point. But at this stage that we're reading in the fourth book, she has closer proximity to the other Skeksis who are on her ship with her and who are influencing her a little maybe. And, and it could just be the nature, you know, the, the rules of this um, phenomena, so to speak, that since she's got more proximity to the darkening in a way, to the other Skeksis, as opposed to being separated from them and closer to her counterpart, now she's more darkened. And so her perspective shifts in that way. I get the feeling she also has an attachment to the Ritual Master. So at this point, with him being there, She's not going to throw her lot in with the the Gelfling. She doesn't want to look weak in front of him. I get that fe- the feel. Yeah. They're so vain. Yeah, she she can't let let herself look lesser to him. Mm-hmm. Well, then it harkens back to what 
um, Jim Henson and Brian Froud talked about how the original designs for the Skeksis were very inspired by the Seven Deadly Sins. And in a way, they um, they all exhibit those those deadly sinful qualities more so when they're together and when they are um, allowing their, each other, they're encouraging each other to be more gluttonous and to be more prideful and, you know, to be more vain. You know, she's exhibiting a lot more of those qualities when she is in the presence of her other Skeksis brethren. Yeah, that's true. And I was just, just thinking like with, you know, with her character, I mean, especially like when you've been a Skeksis for almost a thousand years and I think, you know, sort of, you know, seeing, you know, with her history that, you know, she wanted to sort of um, do her own thing, I think. Because I think I very vaguely recall, I think, in um, Flames that I think she actually had a relationship with one of the Skeksis. Was it Skekso um, at that time or, or was it Skeksok? Like, I was just trying to... I don't recall. Like a relationship relationship? Like a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that just raises questions. <laughs> I don't recall any of those, yeah. Uh, that's all right. No, that's all right. Um, Maybe it was a fanfic? No, I was kidding. I got to go back and yeah, find no, that. No, I mean, no. I'm but, interested. Actually, yeah. I thought that um, I thought I mentioned something about that, that I thought that she had a relationship. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't with Skegzog, but I, I remembered that she seemed to have a certain attachment to one in particular. And I was, and it it did make me think about that. And I was like, well, you know, technically she is female and the rest of them are male and they might have differing relationships with one another. I don't like to go into great detail about it in my brain, but you know, it's one of those things. It's like (laughs) there could even be like a tension there. So. Yeah, I mean, vanity and lust, it would be a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe she got friend-zoned by one of them, so she's still salty about it or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe. Well, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you all. I, I really did like how the Gelfling do start to cast doubt in Skeksaw's mind that the Skeksis overall will be victorious. And I, I do think that, yeah, if the flames of resistance hadn't started lighting especially the one the the seafid one that you know skeksaw was close to and saw i think if that wouldn't have happened maybe skeksaw would still be just okay yeah let's just go off and leave because that's was their original plan she was going to take off with the seafid sell the silver sea and you know who knows what they would find but um anyways continuing on in in the second chapter the gelflings um do their well their plan of escape mostly works you know it doesn't quite go perfectly as they're escaping the door closes and of course they're inside this creature so it's when i was reading this and picturing it it was just nasty and gross like intestines and uh it was very vile because it's a big creature it doesn't really have much reason for living it's not it's not happy with its life currently being under skeksis rule um so i just imagine it's not even taken care of and it's just gross and there's pus and just nasty and fluids everywhere you know inside of bodies are really gross um but anyways one of the doors closes and kylan with his furker he has, he winds up mimicking what Skeksaw does to control this being by making making a certain type of whistle. Of course, it comes out really eerie and strange coming from Kylan because he's making more Skeksy-type whistles, whatever that sounds like. I imagine it's something slightly off-tune and just eerie and weird. Uh, but Kylan does that, and it works. The creature, whatever body part this was, it opens up and closes in time for them to get away. 
while they are swimming back to Annika's ship, which is a little bit damaged, they're mostly going there for supplies because they don't think it's actually going to sail very far. Um, Amri and Naya have a little flirt. They're actually flirting a lot more and more now. They're recalling a time when they were previously underwater, and Naya had to do the breathing for both of them. I thought it was cute how one of them calls it a kiss. A kiss. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't really think about it like that at the time, but I guess it was. You know, they're both kind of blushing, and it's just really nice. <laughs> After all this tension, this intense <laughs> tension, it's like, oh, there's, okay, they're, I, I was going to say they're human and they have emotions, but, you know, they're golfing and they do have some kind of emotion for each other it's obvious you know and they're they're definitely flirting so uh super cute but anyways omri is the cutest oh, i like totally. omri the best I, I love him i love him that's why i was so heartbroken it's like ah oh, there's no omri puppet i needed omri <laughs> but, but anyways uh, fingers crossed for um, season two exactly. i mean <laughs> with omri and, and tay maybe yeah oh, who yeah. knows <laughs> I, I might be backtracking a little here but when i um oh, first in the other book I thought that it seemed almost like that the Skeksis, um, she actually had a um, symbiotic almost relationship with the ship because she was killing off parasites and things. But they make it very clear in this book that it's not. That she is very parasitic to the ship. Yeah. In fact, the fact that those parasites were there was possibly from her influence on the poor thing. I mean, it it actually helps them escape. Somehow they manage to get get it on their side, which is how they get to get out. Things open up and things like that because it's like it knows that they're there and it's trying to help them. Because it, it's not super intelligent, but it is miserable. And it's become miserable mm-hmm. because of the Skeksis using it in that way and I thought that was really interesting because I wasn't sure when I first read that I was like so because there um, I forget the name of the creature in the other book the um, the the, the uh, sand dwellers use to ride and they ride inside of it but it's like they've got like mo- I don't know, a symbiotic relationship the creature they kind of take care of it, and it doesn't really mind them guiding it into the ports and things like that. This creature, though, is actually being practically tortured to move. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool. And as for what you're saying about Anri and Naya, I, I really like that. And this probably comes up more in the other chapters. I just get the feel that Gurjan, it's not so much he's... I mean, it's not the same feeling, but I get the feeling that he he doesn't necessarily 100% approve of Omri. And we get that in the later chapters. But it's like, you know, they they flirt with each other a lot in the first few chapters, and you get the feeling that there is definitely something there. Which makes me happy because Omri was my favorite character. But, you know, I, I thought that the dynamic of it was interesting. Yeah, Gurdjieff's probably being that protective brother, you know, mm-hmm. for his sister. Like, is this, this guy good enough for my sister? Yeah. Anyways, they, those three are actually the ones left in the water. Gurdjieff, Naya, and Amri. All the rest have gotten to the boat. Um, Amri 
knows like, well, there's still no way out of here. So he starts looking around it. He gets the impression that they're in the gums some way. And he's wondering if there's any kind of path or holes to get out. And he does wind up going through one. One, it seems like it opens and shuts real close. It just kind of sucks him in and, and he's gone. And of course, at this point, Naya's in a panic because, well, this is one of her companions. I mean, they were just flirting. Like there's many, there's many things going through her brain, but she's just dead set. Like, I don't know what that tube, if it, if it leads out to the ocean or if it leads into further inside this creature or it leads into a, you know, some, you know, stomach acids. And like, I don't know what's going to happen to him. If it's a place where he can't breathe, well, I can breathe. I can help him there. So she's just resolved. Like I'm going, Gurjan's trying to pull away. Like, no, like we don't know what that is. Don't do it. But she's like, nope. He's in danger. I'm going. It doesn't matter where it goes. Exactly. Says. She's just, she's going to save her friends. And that's, she's resolved. And, uh, you know, she's pushing on the wall. And she's kind of, it's interesting. It mentions like, she's kind of saying prayers and asking like, help, someone help. You know, she's, she's not sure if she's kind of attempting to dream fast. It seems to be going, it gives the impression that this is all happening so sudden in her mind. And it's rushed and there's chaos. I mean, they just escaped. Uh, Skeksis are inside this behemoth <laughs> creature and eventually a door does open up and shoots her through and then you know like like a good comic book ending it leaves off on a cliffhanger this chapter well when she gets there she finds out that um omri is safe you know he can breathe there is some water up to like their legs or something Um, they find another door it opens up and reveals surprise there's the other skeksis that you mentioned earlier nancy skeksok the ritual (laughs) master uh, there and so this book's definitely a page turner because you're like, oh, I just finished chapter two. And actually, when I when I got the Amazon <laughs> preview to read ahead, this is where it ended. I was like, oh, phew, you know, she's safe. And I was like, oh, great. Like, <laughs> she's trapped again. But at least it was a little less dire than last time. I thought it was very telling that she just reacted when Omri was in danger, too. Because, again, it mm. seems like the way that she immediately reacted there's something there that might be even a little closer because she just couldn't think it through it's like omri's in trouble i'm going bye <sighs> yeah yeah she wasn't really thinking of the rest of the party she's like ah they're on the boat they're fine you're there gurgeon you know. yeah these are the qualities of a leader you know you make that decision while other people are dithering and you go and from what we've seen <laughs> she's got the right instincts i just get the feeling that yeah. it's a little more personal though well that too <laughs> Because it's Amory, that's why she just couldn't think on it any longer. You know, it, it comes up later in the book too, where he's in danger and she just kind of reacts. I think it's more of an emotional reaction than a thinking things through sort of reaction. But anyway, sorry. Please continue. <laughs> no, 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 no. All, all good. This is what we're here for. So, uh, yeah. So that that brings us to chapter three. And this chapter just starts off with, you know, trash talking uh, Skegzox, just this rebellion's nonsense. You Gelfling need to just give up, stop the fight. And something clicks in Naya. Like she's already had a resolve. Like she's going all the way through with the mission she's gotten from Agra to light the fires of resistance for all seven clans to do that while uh, Rion goes off on his secret mission, whatever it is, which we find out from the Netflix show, it's to get the dual glaive to end Skeksis' power. Um, but she's just, something snaps in her. And I, I love what she says. She says, my rebel friends and I got in and out of the castle and away from Skekmal the hunter. Our nonsense defeated Skekli the satirist and a horde of Aratham silk spitters in the Grodden sanctuary. You are outnumbered and you'll be defeated. So back off. I'm not afraid of you. 
And then at one point she like pounces on him and, and her and Amory just barehanded knock him over. And uh, it's, it's really great. But the question I had for all y'all, having now come to this point of the fourth book, you know, how much do you think Naya has grown as, a, I know we've mentioned some things already, but has, how much she's grown as a character and, you know, kind of the new attribute she's taken on in, in this role she has? I mean, just like Peter said, she's been shaped into a leader at this point. I mean, obviously she has trust and love now for the other members of her party. So it's very true uh, what Nancy said, how she has these instinctive um, moves to to save the people that she cares about. For sure, because um, I think she definitely would have done the same thing diving into that uh, nasty passageway for Kylan, um, you know, or for Tavra. She definitely would have um, because she now has a lot more trust and, and empathy for other characters that she's she's less influenced by the by the clan divides at this point. And definitely, mm, yeah. like Peter said, she is much more of a leader at this point and she doesn't realize it she's if you um as you are reading these early chapters she has a lot of self-doubt and a lot of um questioning her herself and thinking that she's weak um but really what's happening is that she's gained a lot of strength and she's much more of a of a leader and of a an empathetic trusting um intelligent character who does who isn't blinded at all by the influence of the Skeksis anymore. And the, and the Skeksis use very gaslighty, abusive language. Like, even though they know these characters mm. are like, they're formidable. Um, yeah. They're actually challenging us. So I better talk down to them and tell them, you know, oh, this is foolish. You're, we're going to make it sound like it's nothing to us. We don't even care. Typical, like, gaslighter language. Like, everything you think that's happening, it's not. It's actually nothing. But she knows better now. She doesn't doubt what they're doing she doubts herself sometimes but she's not doubting what they are doing together as a as a unit and that's that's important in a leader and what we're seeing with naya is that where she comes from a lot of this you know dancing around action indecisiveness and politics didn't exist so she brought everything that's valuable to a leader with her and she's learning to trust herself. I mean, cliches, but it's true. We're seeing it. And she's never indecisive to the point where, oh, we'll just run away or, you know, I'll have to get back to you on that. It's okay. I doubt myself, but we've got to do something. So let's do this. And that's the kind of leadership that the Skaxis can't handle because you can't really make that kind of person doubt themselves to the point of inaction. Um, which the, the Skeksok yeah. is finding out. <laughs> well, she's a lot more uh, confident to the point, even on her physical ability, ability, she's more confident now because she knows from pre previous books that she has fought these things and they can be hurt. And at this point, you know, they back her into a corner pretty much and she actually leaps at them physically and manages to get the upper hand. Um, I thought the language in this, uh, some of the things they say, it's very dark. I mean, Skeksog, this part um, on page 20, the Skeksis will ruin the Gelfling so utterly your descendants won't know the names of the seven clans. Oh, I, that, that part gave me chills when I read. I was like, oh, that yeah. is sick. Yeah, this is, 
it, it's one of these things where it's like it's gotten very real. Hello, foreshadowing. To, yeah, well, to say to say something like that to her, she would react. And before she might have run, but it, I think there's a certain amount of rage here. To say something like that to her when she is starting to unite the other clans and things of that nature. I, I mean, she was choking him. She could have potentially killed him in this chapter, but he was just a little bit stronger than she was. But it was one of those things, like, she was strangling him with his own jewelry, which I thought was kind yeah. of... Um, I thought that was kind of a nice um, allegory to <laughs> all of their finery and stuff like that used mm -hmm. against them. But um, it was one of these things that it's like they've gotten to the point that neither of them are, I think it's kind of a, a show of neither of them are playing around anymore. The Skeksis, have, the Skeksis have gotten to the point they're willing to, you know, destroy the Gathling so utterly that they don't have a culture. And Naya's at the point she's almost ready in this chapter to kill the Skeksis. What we're seeing is a death of illusions. It's, you know, here's what's everything's on the table now. There's none of this mm -hmm. posturing or, you know, pretending it's here's us, here's you, let's go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, especially, like, with Naya, like, I mean, there's no way she would have done that, you know, from book one. Like, I mean, in book one, she was just really learning about the world and and learning about, like, the, the healing abilities, um that she was learning from her mother and um and even just even dream fasting like you know as we mentioned before you know in, in the first book that she actually accidentally dream fasts um with Ch tavras even just learning more of those dream fasting abilities like in um you know in later books that yeah she's definitely really developed um so much like um not physically physically but also yeah like you know with you know her with her skills as well um in many ways so no no it, which has been really cool really cool to see her really grow up um um into what she is today you know to, well, <laughs> as she is today as she is in the book you know to the point where she's like yeah you know i've had enough you know i'm i'm standing up to you now so no it's really good yeah she's gone you know book one as a if we're going back to RPG example she's you know level one peasant now she's like level <laughs> 50 holy paladin she's just <laughs> Ready to, ready to strike with holy vengeance I, I i love it i love it but we but, haven't seen any grinding they kind of got dumped into the level five dungeon and just yeah <laughs> go from there they did all the grinding in the other books that's right <laughs> yeah they're, they're level five now it's cool yeah yep. you are my people <laughs> uh, yeah it, it is crazy to see when uh during their tuffle they're having uh the ritual master you know he too has had enough and he gets his staff and he's he's in a perfect position to just bludgeon Omri and naya again with her self-sacrificial leadership style you know just like these are my people i'm doing whatever i can leading by example she just instinctively pushes him out of the way and absorbs that blow herself, you know, probably saving Omri. Uh, this does, however, wind up giving her a fatal wound. And this is, you know, Skeksok too, obviously, they're not, uh, the Skeksis can't control their emotions there. You know, they just they just go all in. The door opens and Gurjin and Skeksar are there. And this is a bad scene because Skeksar's like, uh, we were supposed to ha capture the twins. 
and now one of them is dying. Like you've ruined the plan. Uh, Skektek needed these, and Skeksok's plan is well. We can just say let's just kill them all and just say they died in transportation because he doesn't want to get in trouble. You know they're just trying to cover their own skin at this point. And Skeksaw actually winds up saving their lives. Ironically, uh, she by saying, you know, wait, you fool. Skektek wanted to see if Gelfling can absorb one another's power. Isn't that why he wanted twins? Naya is gifted at healing. I've seen it myself. And then she tells Gurjan to go on, little drench, and take your sister's magic and heal her. Gurjan wonders if this would work. You know, you're kind of you're there reading it like, okay, this is a desperate attempt, and he doesn't really have any other choice. And it's interesting too because that's really been Naya's identity growing up. She was always the healer. Gurjan was always the warrior, the protector. You know, she was the, in training to be the Madra, the next Madra for the Drenchian people. And now she could possibly lose her life or she could lose her one of her main identities. And this chapter ends again, just very comic book style with a, with a total cliffhanger. We see that blue flame, that Vliaya, that Gelfling life essence, blue flame magic coming from Gurjan. So Gurjan seemingly has done it. He's taken the trance. He's transferred her powers, if you will, her healing powers and is attempting to use them to heal his sister, Naya rather crazy point at this book i think <laughs> every chapter is yeah. pretty crazy i think and it, raising the question where does this you know is he really taking this healing ability from her or do they both mm. have it did he have it all along yeah and you know that's of course what naya continues to wrestle with for the a good chunk of the book is did i lose this ability now and it's interesting he was able to take it in the first place because of the fact that gelfling are a matriarchal society and her mother was teaching her to do it. So the fact he was even able to do it in the first place is kind of interesting to me. Um, another, it's like a lot of the um, females in the clan get these special abilities and not necessarily the males. Um, one of the interesting things in this, again, she actually risks her life to save Amory. And this is reinforced throughout a lot of the book that, that she takes a lot more risk to make sure Amory is protected. Um, you know, not necessarily over the others, but it's just a reinforcement of, I think that the bond that they're starting to share. And I think it's interesting because it is almost like he takes her power. And the question still does remain, did he have it along or did he actually take some of her power from her and was able to use it to heal her up? In and of itself, that's actually, I, later on, what causes her to doubt herself because that was such a big part of her and now it feels like it's been stole, stolen, even if it wasn't intentionally by her brother. And I think in a way that kind of hurts her because there is... Um, later on in the opening chapters that we're discussing, it's there's like this this wedge driven between the two of them, and this kind of reinforces it because like she doesn't want to think of him as taking her power. I mean, he did heal her and save her life, but at the same time, there's a lot of different feelings that are coming up between the two of them that it feels like it's driving them apart. And I think this is almost like a physical representation of that. That's a lot to unpack, Nancy. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, we should be it. thinking these things. Yeah, yeah love it. <laughs> because it also, yeah, yeah, and it and it opens up a lot more to consider about, um, you know, the 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 power of the twins, and for me, I think it just says a lot about Naya as a character in terms of what's left in terms of her growth she's as we talked about before she's come a long way in terms of being a leader and putting others before herself and and not thinking before saving those in her party um and leading by example in those things but her last real hurdle is letting go of preconceptions she has about herself she let go of the preconceptions she had about the lines dividing gelfling clans and the things that were embedded in their culture because of what the Skeksis made them think about themselves and about each other. She let go of all those things, all the judgments she had about other clan, other Gelfling, other creatures. Um, but now she still has to do that for herself. She still is stuck on these ideas that she was conditioned to feel about, I'm the healer, I'm the girl one, he's the boy one, he does the fighting, um, we have this kind of relationship and we've never known anything different. And she's flashing back to those insecurities she's had since day one of um, feeling like that young uh, prepubescent drenchen who hasn't gotten her wings yet and who still hasn't controlled her dream fasting abilities. She's insecure about who am I and what's my role. And um, Gurgen really, I think we need to consider too that she hasn't spent a whole lot of time with Gurgen in general since the events of this entire quad quadrilogy started. You know, she went from having the kind of relationship she grew up with having with him to him being gone and the castle. And then she goes on a quest to find him and then she finds him and he's a mess and he's dying. And then she goes a whole bunch more time without seeing him. And then she sees him again. And it's sort of like a, who are we now? We, we grew up and became different people and we did it apart. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for who I am? Yeah. It's really interesting that not just literally, but you know, um, like in, in mythology, you have a lot. I wasn't thinking about this till we kind of were going through the scene deeply in mythology. You have a lot of, times where whether literally or figuratively the hero goes into the belly of the beast and then at that point they there's a lot of risk involved and they have to face some of their darker thoughts or challenges and it's interesting she is in the belly of the beast and she that's when she like we see her so confident and fierce and then this one instance is a turning point that really challenges her and she's either going to just become a wreck from it hiding a corner or she's going to grow from it and become stronger and she's kind of in that state mm -hmm. where it's i'm not sure what i'm going to do yet i don't know what this means for me she, i mean she's also physically weak right now because of the injury so um but yeah that, that is an interesting point this is really her belly of the beast moment you know it's like what's how is she going to emerge victorious or just swallowed up by this beast and just done for you know it's like oi crazy stuff but um but that does bring us to chapter four where we learn that the healing does work and the chamber that they were in does wind up providing a quick escape for the Gelfling. Naya deduces that she's kind of dream fasting with this creature as she's reaching out. And we've seen her do this in the past. She That is also a special power. It seems that Naya can tap into dream fasting with animals, you know, some, and kind of getting the sense of what 
they're feeling, especially the darkened ones that she's run into a lot throughout the books. Um, when she dream past with these creatures, she can tell whether something's wrong or the song that they sing, as she puts it, is out of tune due to the corruption of the crystal. Things are just not as they should be on Thra. Uh, we see this clearly when uh, she dreams fast with this creature, and I really love this quote. It says, quote, Naya, as she stood again on the threshold of the doorway between their minds, between their hearts, in the dream space of their dream fast, peering into the abyss, Naya saw a twinkle, and this is after they had... Uh, the creature had let him out and they were now above the creature, but she was, you know, her hand was still on her and she was re, uh, dream fast with this creature. And it says, um, the smallest ember barely kept glowing. Naya wanted to tend that smoldering light, protect it and nurture it until it blazed again. This creature was in its own pain. Like every being on Thra, it had a will and a song and both had been taken prisoner by the Skeksis. If she truly wanted to meet minds, Naya had to set aside her own desperations. End quote. And in the context, it's talking about there, you know, Naya's just like, please help, just help, 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 just just help me. You know, she was just asking of it. But she didn't, until she kind of came to this and saw like, oh, this is not like my other dream fast with creatures where I'm seeing them in anger or hatred or they kind of turned quickly. This thing, it's, she calls it ancient. It seems like it's been a long time. You know, she's unsure whether Skeksaw started controlling this creature when it was smaller. You know, a lot of this is unknown. Um, but what she does know is that there's just a tiny ember of will to live left in this creature. And she's like, okay, how do I encourage this? Like, I, I need to set aside my own, please just help me and just really encourage this thing to go. But uh, one thing I was curious, again, this is another really interesting look at dream fasting. What did y'all think about the imagery J.M. Lee used on this scene? I thought it was, I thought it was really cool and just very interesting. Uh, quite a lot to unpack. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually had the thought, you know, what if this uh, creature had been uh, uh, pair bonded, if you wanted, with uh, a mystic? Like, how different would that have been? Like, what would Anaya have seen uh, with that kind of dream fasting in comparison? And, I mean, obviously we're getting a, a sense of the, <laughs> the vast cruelty of the Skeksis, but, you know, this gives us perspective as well on uh, what the difference is between Naya and the Skeksis. You know, she's able to perceive this. I don't even know if Skeksa can perceive this. Yeah. I don't think Skeksa can. Skeksa was always using this thing as her boat, basically um, putting her will onto it. She, the fact that it might actually have a, a legitimate personality of its own and be a creature of its own I don't think that even ever occurred to her because um, you start off with it you know you finally start to see it as what it is this thing that's been enslaved to the Skeksis and possibly even wants to die but this very ancient uh, creature that I guess for some reason she had such a force of personality it thought it couldn't rebel against her and in the fa in the way that Naya is kind of making all the clans rebel she manages to make this creature that has probably been the Skeksis slave for quite some time realize that it can rebel against her as well I thought that was very interesting too because suddenly it decides to turn against her and there is absolutely nothing she can do about it. 
you know <laughs> at that point it's like you know she tells she tells that she has no power over you anymore and it decides to submerge itself with both of the Skeksis inside of it so yeah. it's um I thought that was a very interesting scene and that, that they, they really brought that kind of home that this wasn't a symbiotic relationship she had been the parasite the whole time and this and the turtle finally realizes this and when it does it um it could potentially have killed them i would love to have seen both skexies up on a giant water spout 100 feet above (laughs) in the air air. (laughs) too bad (laughs) maybe in a fanfic who knows fanfic is dangerous business sometimes (laughs) <laughs> I'm afraid to look. That's a, that's well, fanfics are kind of how this all started, if you think about it. Absolutely. Well, I'm just know. saying, be careful when you look. Mm-hmm. Yes, Asking the um, questions, what if? Yeah, definitely. No. Yeah, not opposed. Just you know, be careful what you're googling. Is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But also, <laughs> I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting to consider how since Vasa, the the turtle ship, has been listening to Skeksa all this time, it does kind of make me wonder if there's a connection to Ursan as well. Like if maybe Ursan has has um, communicated with Vasa at all, um, you know, while she's swimming around out there. And because she has that connection with her Skeksis counterpart, you know, there there might be some sort of a mental bond there as well, like she has with her, with her Skeksis boss. But that's that's just an interesting thing to sort of theorize about. But uh, what I was going to say also was just that the uh, Skeksa has kind of treated Vasa the way that she's started treating the Gelfling, like like their pets, and she's sort of, to, for lack of a better word, she dehumanized them. You know, they're they're not people to her. They're useful to her and that's what Vasa has become so Naya has tapped into that and she's like hey I recognize that you're not just a vessel you are a being you have thoughts you have feelings and I'm acknowledging that where your master has not so that's another good quality of a leader she's she's empathetic she recognizes life she recognizes feelings yeah and that's a good point about uh, Ursan the swimmer, uh, the counterpart to uh, Skeksa the mariner, uh, because as soon as this behemoth creature, we're all just calling the giant turtle, um, or I guess if we want to use a dark crystalline, we can say tortle, because tortle, you know, with an O is in the comics, and it kind of looks like a behemoth, although it lives on land, but who knows? They're amphibians. Yeah. They can live on both. Whatever. It's thraw. Lots of things <laughs> live. Um, like rocks and mountains and trees move, so it's whatever. Um, but it is interesting that as soon as uh, this tortle kind of spits up Annika's ship, and now, you know, Naya, Gurjan, Amri, Kylan, uh, and Tay, you know, Annika and, and Tay being controlled by Tavra are all there. Uh, Naya does get away. She kind of flies them down to the ship. And her wound kind of reopens, and she kind of loses consciousness again. But they are they are rescued by uh, Skeksaw the Mariner, and so he just happens to know it seems you know be at the right place at the right time. So possibly there was more of a connection, like you're saying. It is interesting to like there are two sides of one coin. So how much can they tap into each other's minds and thoughts and things like that? 
because uh, when we see at the end of the Netflix show, you know, um, Skekmal, the hunter, could kind of see through the eyes of Irva, the archer, and you're like, whoa, it's just trippy, you know, and he's he's tripping out, so, but. All right, well, that does bring us to chapter five. Uh, that escape did cause Naya's injury to reopen, as I mentioned, and it knocked her out for a whopping 12 days. Uh, she learns that Gurjin had been healing her, which she then deduces, like, okay, Gurjin really did absorb my powers. And we even read her thoughts about it. It says, quote, Naya wasn't sure what that meant for her, or for him, for the both of them. Was it something she would reabsorb over time, or was it permanent? Either way, she couldn't worry about it now. She had her life because of it. She was in no position to be upset. Whatever had happened was done, end quote. And I, I do really like how, I, I jotted down in my notes, I mentioned here, um, the content Naya, you know, we, we've seen fierce Naya and um, not sure about herself Naya, but this is a really a content Naya. She's like, okay, this is the situation. I should just be thankful I'm alive. I thought that was a really interesting, unique quality for a protagonist that, you know, we, we might find in older stories, but modern day, I don't recall a lot of modern stories that take time to focus on like being content, you know, as a character trait in a positive way. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if you had, if any of y'all had any thoughts on that. Um, I like roll with it, Naya. That works for me. <laughs> now the, oh, well, this happened and I can't yeah. do anything about it right now, but it's good. And, you know, it's not like it was her defining characteristic. So being able to be adaptable, again, is a, a sign of a leader and definite character development. Um, but what we're also seeing here is uh, consequences and sacrifice. So it's not as if Gurdjian absorbed the powers and she woke up, you know, the next morning perfectly healed. You know, we lost 12 days there, and that implies as well it was touch and go for a bit. But uh, I do like that we have a protagonist who can have something like this happen to her, and it's not, you know, devastating. Oh, I've lost my ability to heal, and that's, that's terrible, and whatever will I do? It's like, oh, okay, well, let's just get on with it. Yeah, and she does. Uh, when, you know, she, again, kind of wakes up in a daze and, you know, kind of slowly comes to. And when she asks how they got wherever they're at, she learns that Ursan, the swimmer, is there. And they and Ursan transported them down the Black River to safety. And she's introduced to Urza, the ritual guardian, Urti, the alchemist. And they're informed that, Ursu, the master, is there with one of their friends, Irva the archer, who they've spent um, a good amount of time with in previous books, and she definitely has one of the closest relationships to Irva. So um, I think that's a cool um, connection there. That you know she's still very concerned and really thinks about it there. So we also see healthy crystal veins for the first time where she's at. She kind of walks out of the hut and she sees healthy crystal veins throughout the book. She's just been seeing darkened ones, and she's really concerned about that. Um, and then finally, we learned that she is in Mystic Valley, which was really cool. I remember when we got to this point, I was like, Mystic Valley? I, I, did, I didn't think Yay! at all they were going to hit this point. <laughs> I don't, how did y'all react yeah. when you uh, yeah. hit, hit this point in the book? With a big cheer. I wanted to <laughs> pull out a yeah, camera yeah. and start taking pictures. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was such a, it's just so, so great to, you know, be like, oh, wow, we're actually at the Valley of the Stones. I mean, you know, just never imagine, you know, we've read the books that we'd even, you know, get to that place at all so no it was really exciting to um um to you know to because you know this is a place that we all know and love from the original film so this was just really cool to 
be you know hanging out with the mystics essentially for um for the next couple of chapters um i know that was something that you know in each book that we only really got to introduce you know got to know like one mystic i mean i think book one was um over the archer um book two yeah, was early on. early the storyteller mm-hmm. and book three was ursan so it's pretty cool that we're actually going to get you know getting to know more of the other mystics um within you know flames of the dark crystal which is pretty cool if i can say too that the choice of seeing Irva the archer regularly throughout the book series um i find that thematically interesting because when you have a the symbol of the archer um it works for many different metaphors uh, about life choices and things that um you know the the arrow once fired cannot be recalled uh it's really interesting to see that keeps on coming up uh even if it's you know not you know obvious uh the fact that uh, we see an archer in there is indicative of character development and growth and choice and even <laughs> if you want destiny Sydney, when you realized you were in Mystic Valley, what was your reaction? Uh, Well, I did a big fangirl squeal. Um, I was like, (laughs) yay, finally! Um, Because, yeah, that was, I think, something that was missing from Age of Resistance. Um, I think a lot of us felt that absence. Not that, that, you know, I wasn't happy with Age of Resistance or anything, but I think a lot of us felt like, oh, we didn't really get to chill with the mystics like we do in the movie. I kind of wanted to go into that valley. And this was a nice little... um, I think Joe understood that we were waiting for that moment because he he wrote it in such a way that it was a lovely like lifting of the curtain and da 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 here it is guys you've been waiting for it let's chill with the mystics nice little break from all that crazy um tortle adventure and let's just take a breather and hang in the valley of the mystics for a minute somewhere familiar somewhere that you've all been before from the original film so it was a nice little dose of um winking to the audience uh, so to speak um by giving them a nice little trip to somewhere that felt cozy and familiar so that was that was it for me it was like a ah it was like a nice little sigh of like a hug from an old friend a little bit mm. yeah it was like a familiar respite even though our gelfling companions hadn't been there before you know we have and so it's like ah oh, this is a good place to kick off her shoes chill with the mystics i mean you you can't be in any rush with the mystics anyways they're so slow and chill and you know just absorb everything just slowly and deliberately it, it was also a nice break from because all that tension we've had in those first four chapters was that was just a continuation of the ending tension from book three like there was still so much drama and just craziness going going on so it was like okay we've we've been going like i would i would guess you know six seven eight chapters of pretty high tension people possibly dying fatal wounds this and that people missing um so it was like oh chilling with the mystics thank you <laughs> i needed this yeah. nice rest stop here so uh, two two interesting little little facts i liked in this chapter was that we learned it was omri who nicknamed the mystic valley you know that's one way we hear it you know it's i think it's formally called the valley of the uru uh, but mystic valley is omri's nickname for it and like how it just says because Omri says, well, it's a valley and it's pretty mystical. You know, he's just, he's kind of, he's a dork. I love him. Uh, and the second interesting fact we learned from there 
from that chapter, rather, was that Madra Argot, the Groton Madra, was the oldest living Groton. I thought that was a little interesting fact. I do recall one of the writers in a Q&A mentioning that the Groton can live well over 100 years old. And so that was just little interesting side notes from that chapter. But I think we had a lot of good discussion. And I think this is a good place for us to pause, have a nice respite with the Uru. You know, uh, when we pick up this podcast next time, we will start in chapter six, where there's a lot of info and the Gelfling learn a lot of, uh, I'll just say stuff. And it, they really have to make some decisions on how they're going to move forward with all this new information they're going to learn hanging out with the mystic. So do y'all have any more comments up through chapter five? Just going to say it starts out on a high note and just keeps going. It's not a, a slow build. It's okay. Stuff's happening and okay. More things and Oh, injury. Naya. All right. And it has to go up from here. So we're really seeing, you know, the other three books culminating in this one. Uh, in terms of action and payoff and decisions by the characters. And they're rising to the challenge, which is wonderful to see. And that's just the first five chapters. And yeah, there's just a, just a lot of pace that's going on, especially these first five chapters. Like, so much actually does go on more than, um, you know, than we realize. I mean, especially because I, I remember, like, reading it, like, with... Um, uh, tides of the dark crystal and the first couple of chapters were pretty jam-packed as well so um yeah it's really nice to see you know this pace going and and i guess it is kind of cool now that we're sort of at the valley mystics and you know gives definitely gives sort of the reader that um the breathing space you know all right like let's chill for a couple of chapters with the with the mystics and and see what you know new knowledge that we gain from them um as they move forward in in, in their story yep very cool well, with that, let's do our sign-offs. Let me encourage our audience to, you know, if you haven't read the book yet, uh, this is a good time to catch up with us. It's As you can tell, we really love this book. It's exciting. You learn so much more of Thra. Uh, I really love it. But uh, let's first say uh, goodbye to all. Uh, Nancy Gray, let's start with you. Why don't you tell us where we could find you online? My my email address is nancygrayrider at gmail.com. My Facebook is writer Nancy Gray. Uh, working in some projects right now, and I do write a writer's blog, which is nancygray.blogspot.com. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell the audience where they can find you online? Sure thing. The easiest thing uh, to do is just to go to my website, dwimsaga.com. That's D-W-I-I-M-M dot com and you can contact me from there and i really appreciate being here today it's hard to believe that it's uh, already five chapters in we've had a talk and uh, really exciting uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting uh, discussion of the final book indeed there there is so much jam-packed in all these chapters very cool and sydney frost thank you again for joining us uh where can people find you if they want to stalk you online uh, well, firstly, you can find me at the Facebook group, the Crystal Shard, the Dark Crystal fan page. Um, I am one of the administrators and moderators for that fan group, and I'm there pretty often posting things regarding to Dark Crystal news and updates and my own fan art, um, my, my own adventures restoring Askexes from the 
uh, crystal, a crystal creature shop, the Jim Henson creature shop, <laughs> which also had the crystal. So I guess that's appropriate. <laughs> um, and yeah. you can find me on Instagram as well. Um, you can just look for Sydney Frost. My first name is spelled super weird, but it'll be in the show notes. Um, my username is Black Star Far Dreamer. I post a lot of my uh, Dark Crystal artwork on there as well, um, as well as Shameless Cat Spam. Um, so if you're into that sort of thing, uh, that's where I'll be. Very cool. And Philip Mitchell, where on earth could we find you? Well, I mean, you can definitely find me on my other podcast with Trial by Stone. Um, but <laughs> it, I mean, to plug all my things, I mean, you can go to the website at darkcrystalpodcast.com. That's where all the, the podcasts live, you know, finding all the episodes and stuff. Um, of oh, course, yeah, I'm there too. Yeah, and you're there too, yeah, <laughs> Sydney. Um, but also, yeah, and of course you can you know find me on social media, Dark Crystal Pod on Twitter and Dark Crystal Podcast on um, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and do I do have my own personal um, Twitter at, at Philip Mitchell. So it's just my full name, um, at Philip Mitchell, um, just Philip with one L. <laughs> Very cool. And lastly... Uh, I've been your host, Jason Delgado. Again, thank you, Philip, for entrusting this podcast to me and uh, allowing me to host. It is truly my joy to do that. Uh, you can normally find me over at the Dark Crystal Conjunction on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash the Dark Crystal Conjunction. I'm most active on Twitter. I pretty much post something throughout every weekday and have discussions with several fans out there. Uh, I also am a moderator of the Dark Crystal Reddit page, or not official Dark Crystal Reddit page, but the biggest one there and yeah i'll be on the gathering songs until uh, they kick me off so <laughs> you can find me around this place as well but anyways it has uh been a delight to talk to you all thank you again so much and i hope you all can join us next time for the gathering songs the gathering songs the dark crystal discussions is a production of three point edit if you would like to get in contact with the show you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com we're on facebook at facebook.com forward slash darkcrystalpodcast we're also on twitter at darkcrystalpod and on instagram at darkcrystalpodcast if you'd like to know more about the podcast visit our website at darkcrystalpodcast.com This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com.